Good morning and welcome to Simply Finance. It's Thursday, February 29th. On today's show, Hong Kong government can bring back property curbs if necessary, according to Paul Chan. G20 finance ministers meet to discuss the world economy affected by crises and conflicts. Plus, the Ohio Senate passes a GOP-backed campaign finance proposal on foreign money. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Finance. We start off with a look at Hong Kong's finance sector, where finance chief Paul Chan has stated that the government has not ruled out the reintroduction of property market cooling measures if conditions change. Despite facing a deficit, Chan believes there is no need for new taxes as revenue from land sales is expected to increase after the removal of property sales restrictions. Here to discuss this further is Michael, a correspondent for Simply Finance. Can you tell us more about the current situation in Hong Kong's property market? Certainly, David. In a surprising move, Chan announced the removal of all cooling measures that were introduced over a decade ago to limit property speculation. These measures were scrapped with immediate effect. Chan believes that the current and future home supply is very sufficient and that there is almost no speculative activity, making it a suitable time to scrap controls. But what if the market conditions change? Chan has assured that the government will monitor the market and reintroduce these measures if necessary. He emphasized that appropriate action will be taken if needed. Hong Kong is facing a significant deficit. Why is Chan against the introduction of new taxes? Chan believes that the economy is recovering and that corporations and residents need space to take care of their losses from previous years. He also pointed out that Hong Kong's low taxation is a way to attract talent and investment and any changes could affect the city's competitiveness. What about the suggestion of a land-based departure tax or a revival of the city's red wine tax? Chan dismissed these suggestions. He mentioned that a travel tax is already collected from people who leave the city by air, and a charge for land-based departures wouldn't make sense as the government wants free movement across the border. As for the red wine tax, it was removed in 2008 to develop the industry and boost the city's tourism and catering industry. What is the expected impact of the removal of property sales restrictions on land sale revenues? Chan is confident that the city's land sale revenues will increase after the removal of the curbs. He predicts that developers will want to replenish their land supply once the housing market stabilizes. There have been some criticisms about the government's plans and a lack of financial sweeteners for the middle class. How has Chan responded to these concerns? Chan acknowledged these concerns and stated that the government would need to rely on tourism in the short term to strengthen the economy through consumption. He appealed for public understanding over the relatively small amount of sweeteners, citing pressure on the government's finances. After hearing from our Simply Finance reporter Michael, let's shift our focus to global economics. As the world's top economies gather for a meeting in Sao Paulo, Brazil, the host nation is calling for a new globalization to address poverty and climate change. However, the ongoing conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza may overshadow these discussions. Here to delve deeper into this is our correspondent, James. So what exactly is Brazil proposing in this new globalization? 
Brazil's finance minister, Fernando Haddad, is advocating for a redefinition of globalization. He suggests creating incentives to ensure international capital flows are guided not just by immediate profit, but also by social and environmental principles. Brazil, which assumed the rotating presidency of the G20 from India in December, is urging the group to prioritize combating poverty and climate change, easing the debt burdens of low-income nations, and giving developing countries more say in institutions like the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. And how are these proposals being received by other members of the G20? There's been a mixed response. While some members are absent, including the Chinese, Indian, and Russian finance ministers, others are present and actively participating. For instance, French finance minister Bruno Le Maire has backed Brazil's call for higher taxes on corporations and the super-rich. However, the conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza have taken center stage, potentially overshadowing Brazil's proposals. Speaking of the Ukraine conflict, what are the G7 countries discussing in relation to this? The G7 finance ministers have discussed a proposal to seize an estimated $397 billion in Russian assets frozen by the West over Moscow's military operation. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and Canadian Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland have backed this idea. However, France's Le Maire has expressed reservations, stating that they currently lack the legal basis for seizing the Russian assets. And what about the situation in Gaza? How is that affecting the G20 meeting? The war in Gaza is indeed a recurring theme at the G20 meeting. There are fears that Israel's offensive against the Palestinian militant group Hamas could escalate into a wider war with potentially catastrophic effects for the global economy. Le Maire has called the potential expansion of the Middle East conflict a significant risk. While geopolitical risks continue to pose significant challenges to the global economy, as James just highlighted, we're seeing some interesting developments on the domestic front as well. The Ohio Senate has recently passed a GOP-backed campaign finance proposal that aims to ban foreign contributions to campaigns for and against ballot issues in the state. The bill, known as Senate Bill 215, was introduced by Senators Rob McCauley and Teresa Gavarone in January and has been fast-tracked through the legislative process. Celeste is here to discuss this further. Can you tell us more about the motivations behind this bill, Celeste? Certainly, David. The proponents of SB 215 argue that it creates consistency in state law. Since 2000, Ohio candidates have not been allowed to accept money from foreign nationals. However, this ban does not extend to ballot issues. The bill aims to close this loophole. The state defines foreign nationals as individual non-U.S. citizens or permanent residents, governments of foreign countries, and foreign political parties. And what has been the response from the Democratic Caucus? Members of the Democratic Caucus, including Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio, have argued that SB 215 doesn't really tackle the issue of dark money. Antonio suggested that the bill was a reaction to the recent success of citizen-initiated ballot issues, calling it a sore loser bill. Furthermore, Senator Bill DeMora, the lone Democrat on the committee, introduced two amendments, which were both tabled. DeMora expressed concerns that the bill could have unintended consequences, such as requiring Ohioans putting together petitions for local issues to register as a political action committee. What has been the response from the bill's proponents to these criticisms? 
Senator McCauley has dismissed these criticisms as overblown. He argued that the bill is a straightforward measure to prevent foreign influence in Ohio's elections, regardless of where it's coming from. Four national conservative organizations have submitted proponent testimony, and so far there have been no public opponents. What are the next steps for this bill? SB 2515 has now been sent to the Ohio House for consideration. It's worth noting that the bill was passed along party lines in the Senate with a vote of 25 to 7. Thanks for the insights, Celeste. Now shifting our focus to the UK, the government there has been accused of moving the goalposts to meet its international climate commitments. This comes after £1.7 billion of an existing aid budget was reclassified as providing poorer countries with environmental funding. Despite these changes, the government's official aid watchdog suggests that Downing Street might still fall short of the £11.6 billion target due to significant cuts to overseas aid budgets. Bella, our correspondent for Simply Finance, is here to discuss this further. Can you explain the reclassification that's taken place? Certainly, David. The reclassification refers to the government's decision to count a portion of its existing aid budget as contributing to its climate target. The Independent Commission for Aid Impact, or ICAI, has stated that without these changes, the government had no chance of meeting its 11.6 billion pound target. This reclassification allowed the government to count an extra 1.724 billion pounds towards the target. But it's important to note that this didn't result in any additional money for countries needing support to tackle climate change. What impact has this had on the UK's reputation in terms of climate finance? The ICAI report suggests that the government's reputation as a leader in this field has been damaged. The UK's £11.6 billion pledge, which came from various UN climate conferences, was initially praised for setting the UK as a leader in climate finance donations. However, the reclassification, which represents 15% of the total UK climate pledge, has raised concerns. And how does this affect the UK's ability to meet its £11.6 billion pledge? The ICAI report indicates that the government still needs to find 55% of the £11.6 billion in the final two years of the pledge. At least £2.6 billion of the pledge is now not due to be spent until the final year, 2025-26, after a general election. This backloading could place significant budgetary pressure on any incoming government aid program. What are the concerns around the reclassification? The ICAI Chief Commissioner, Dr. Tamsin Barton, who led the review, expressed concern that by altering its accounting methods and identifying existing spend as international climate finance, the UK is offering less additional assistance than was originally promised. This may not be as suited to the needs of the most vulnerable countries at risk from climate change. The report also notes that more of UK aid funding has been translated into loans rather than grants via multilateral development banks a method less appropriate for the poorest and most climate-vulnerable countries. That's a significant concern indeed. Thanks to our Simply Finance reporter, Bella, for shedding light on this issue. And with that, we wrap up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Finance. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>